So as you're finding your way back to your seat, I want to ask you a question that I think I might know the answer to. It varies a little bit person to person, but do you always expect the worst to happen? If you think about it. Just this past week, I was reading a thread on Reddit where people were talking about this. So the person who posted the thread was someone who identified themselves as TweetBird101. Tweetbird said to this question, do you always expect the worst to happen? She said, I do. When I fly, I expect it to crash. When I go to the doctor, I expect bad news. I don't think I deserve good news. Like now, I have a mole on my back that's probably nothing, but I need to get it checked out. But I'm sure that I don't deserve good news about it, and that makes me sure that it's cancerous. In fact, My life has actually been going pretty smoothly for the last few years. That just makes it more likely that I'm due for bad news. Isn't that a weird way of thinking? Does that happen to anyone else? With that intro, people just started writing their own experiences. Patchy Doll commented, I can relate to this. Whenever something good happens, I feel off or aware until something terrible balances it out. I just associate a good thing happening with being a prelude to a bad thing. And when that bad thing happens, it's a feeling of relief. It's almost funny at times, sort of like, quote, of course the cat barfed on my sandal. I found a $20 bill on the ground last week kind of mentality. (laughs) Funny enough, I don't get that feeling in reverse. If a bad thing happens without having a good thing in recent memory, it's just a bad thing. I'm not waiting for a good thing to balance it out. And the more people talked, the more I noticed they began to associate their expectations of bad things happening, not just to bad things randomly happening, but instead actually to the universe sort of colluding against them, or even God having something out for them. So the next person posted, his name was Humanity is a Waste. He said this, oh yeah, if something bad happens, it's because I deserved it. And in the old religious guilt it's divine punishment. If something good goes on, I wait for the shoe to drop because good doesn't last. And then Tweetbird said this, does anyone else ever imagine a mean, horrible deity who essentially hates you and doesn't want you to be happy? I've done this for years. How do you expect things to play out in your life? In this series, we've been talking about rediscovering good news. But do you expect that if you encounter God in your life, even in this service this morning, that the result is actually going to be positive or good news? No, I mean, really, what do you expect from God for you? Not just in general, but specifically you. Because I wonder if a lot of us, sort of like Tweetbird, we expect bad news. Maybe Good news in general for all of humanity, but bad news for me. But what if? What if God actually wants you to be happy? And all of his actions, when they come into connection with your life, will connect you actually to something better than you could hope for. And what I found is this is actually, this idea, is actually a scary proposition for most of us. You know, but it was also scary for the people in the Bible who met Jesus. 
And I think and I hope that this morning we can learn from them and it can change our lives and how we relate to God, what we expect, and how our whole lives feel. And so what I want us to do this morning is see several interactions in several different settings with Jesus and other people, different kinds of people. So what we're doing today, we're reading a longer passage. We're going to read a whole chapter of Mark because in it there's two or three, maybe even four interactions between Jesus and, and different types of people in different settings. And I think that they will help us understand more why good news is so hard for us to believe and why we fear that the presence of God in our lives is actually bad news sometimes. But also how Jesus can take us past this to some good, refreshing, and really empowering ways to live. So let's read this. This is a little longer. It's not in your bulletin because it was, it's, it's a whole chapter. But it will be projected behind me so you can follow along. This is Mark chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gezerines. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding in the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. And the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well, and then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And as Jesus was getting into a boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. The large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject, subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus, realizing that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then, 
The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was speaking, some people came to him from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand, said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Now, I don't know if you noticed, it's a long passage. But this whole grouping of stories pretty much starts with a question. And the question is this. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. What do you want with me, Jesus? Please don't torture me. And what a, what a, honestly, a great question. It's super real. What do you expect from Jesus? What do you expect his effect on your life to be? Do you ever wonder, what do you want with me, God? Do you want to torture me? Do you want to make me suffer? Do you want to punish me? What do you want with me? Is God, his presence, his will, even his calling, bad news? And if you look at this passage, there's a common theme that repeats again and again. I don't know if you realize it, but in every story today, people are constantly falling on their knees in front of Jesus, often afraid, begging, pleading. And if we look closely at these interactions, I think we can see some reasons why fear is often our first response to approaching God. So there are a few things I think that we, we fear that we can see demonstrated in these stories. First, we fear that we're going to lose. I can't help but be struck by the reaction of the townspeople to Jesus. When they see a man who'd been impressed by demons for years, who had lived out in Woodland Cemetery, naked, beating people up, who couldn't be chained, sitting clothed in his right mind, having conversations with people. And their response was, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. They want Jesus to leave. They're afraid. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's what I think is going on here. There could be a few things going on here, but one thing I think is that this gentleman from the Gezerines, he obviously had demons, right? 2,000 or something crazy like that. He had so many that his life was out of control. Now, for most of us, <laughs> I think that isn't the case. 
I don't notice anyone here living in Woodland Cemetery. We all have our clothes on. But if we're honest, we all also have our demons. We have things that are messing up our lives. Old hurts, patterns of sin, broken relationships, things that really hinder our lives and make it harder to live. They steal our energy. But we've sort of learned to manage them, right, to get by. Things may not be working well, but we know how to compensate. And even though it takes a lot of energy and it drains us and we're exhausted, we have sort of figured that out and we're comfortable with it. We've adjusted. It reminds me of my bachelor days (laughs) before I got married and my standard of cleanliness was somewhat different than it is now. And I remember I was dating Becca, actually. She came over to my apartment, and she went into the use of the restroom, and she came out and she said, oh, my gosh, Brad, there's a cockroach on the wall. I was like, oh, well, show me. I'll kill it. Well, I couldn't kill it because it apparently had died and got caught in fresh paint. <laughs> and so it was just there. And my response to Becca was, oh, that's been there forever. Don't worry. And, then, and, and, and I would do, but see, I would compensate. So like sometimes if ever I had a friend coming to stay from out of town or my parents were coming to town and I would often offer them my bed and I would sleep on the couch. So my room in those days, I'm not exaggerating to say, I would often sort of hop from the door into my bed because there was just papers and everything all over the floor. So I would just jump from bed and I'd get up and I'd jump to, you know, and just, that's how it worked. And I was okay with that. So uh, then when people would come and stay, I would clean everything up. Like, it, it was ridiculous. My room would look so clean. But what you didn't realize is, like, 80% of the stuff just got jammed into my closet, and I shut the door, including, like, bills that I had to pay and stuff like that. So it looked clean, and I sort of made it work. But then every once in a while, something would really break down. Like, all of a sudden, I wouldn't have insurance on my car anymore. I couldn't drive it. Things like that that were incredibly inconvenient. But for the most part, I knew how to sort of make it work. And that's just my old bachelor pad days. But what if there are things in our lives now that are more significant, that are areas of oppression or broken down uh, in a relationship, maybe an addiction, a pattern that hurts people that I love? And the question I think this passage asks us are, are we more afraid of the light than we are of darkness. The townsfolk are more afraid of Jesus than the demons in their lives. As long as they can manage their sin, if they can keep their sin outside of their town, in the cemetery, in the tombs, that's fine. But if Jesus wants to come into the city, no, 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 no. That's too close. That's uncomfortable. So instead of encountering Jesus... And I would think experiencing some new form of freedom, like this man who was possessed experienced, experiencing love in a new way, they're afraid. And they'd rather continue to live with what isn't working in their life, that's sapping their energy, their life, their peace, than engaging with Jesus. Particularly when they realize, wow, there's something real here with him. When we get afraid that Jesus is actually bad news, 
will embrace all kinds of darkness and miss the light. Another thing we fear, we fear that we are unimportant. I can't imagine being Jairus and how he must have been feeling in this story. You know, a lot of commentaries have actually pointed out that if Jesus was a doctor today, he could be sued for malpractice. Because as you know, if you've ever gone to the emergency room, when you're in the emergency room, the person who gets treated is the person with the biggest need. So if you need stitches, but someone else is having a heart attack, they're going to take care of the person with a heart attack, and you're just going to have to hold a compress to whatever's cut or bleeding until they can get to you, because you're not the most pressing need. But here, Jesus doesn't follow that protocol. So you have uh, a little girl who's dying, right? But you have a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. That sounds terrible, right? But she's made it for 12 years. She could probably make it a few more hours, right? But Jesus does this thing where he actually stops. Now that in itself might sound interesting or not, but if you, and to me, I was like, oh, that's always stops, big deal. But one day I was reading another version of the story written by Luke. So Luke wrote another version that's part of the Christian scriptures. And he mentioned this. A large crowd of disciples was there and a great number of people who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled with impure spirits were cured. And this is the interesting part. And all the people tried to touch him because power was coming out from them and healing them all. Then two chapters later, Luke tells a story about the bleeding woman that we're reading today. My point being, if I had power zapping out of me, that would be remarkable. And I would stop and say, whoa, what just happened? Who touched me? Apparently, this was not unusual for Jesus. As he toured, people gathered around him trying to touch him. And from time to time, if not commonplace, was this thing that happened with this bleeding one where power would go out from him. And he would touch and it would heal him. And he would just keep going like he would never stop. But here he stops. Why? Here's what I think is going on. In that culture, according to the purity rules of the day, if you were bleeding, you were unclean, impure. Not only that, if you were bleeding, everything you touched was unclean and impure. And anyone who touched you or anything that you touched would also be unclean, impure, would not be able to worship in the temple, would not be able to participate in regular social interaction. So this woman... As much as she was suffering from bleeding, 12 years, spending all of her money, she's probably living out on the outskirts of town. She's probably at least somewhat devoid of like personal touch for 12 years and a social outcast. So I think there's more going on here than her needing just a physical healing. I think there's a second healing that she needs. And she needs to be restored to community as part of the social fabric. And somehow Jesus, I think, knows this. So on this occasion, he stops. And he does something that he doesn't always do. Normally, he just keeps going. He stops, and he has the woman come forward in front of everyone. And you notice that she does something. It says that she fell at his knees and just told him the whole story. That's another thing I think we forget or we fear. 
We fear being forgotten like Jairus, and we fear people knowing the whole story. And yes, Jesus wants us to know we're not forgotten. We're going to come back to that in a little bit, but he also wants us to know that he knows our whole story. And there's no rejection for us, whatever's in there. And so Jesus calls a woman out. Her whole story's out there, and he calls her daughter. Brings her right back into the family. And she's reconnected to the social structure, and she's accepted by a famous religious leader. And there's a second healing that takes place. If he just let her go, she would have carried with her shame. Always glad that Jesus never really knew her and always trying to hide away what she'd been through. But instead, by revealing her whole story, she's affirmed by Jesus. He wants us to know our whole story is known and we are loved. And we don't have to be afraid. He wants to affirm our real true selves. He wants to accept us for who we really are, even the hidden parts and the parts that need redemption. But like we've said, and as we can see in this story, this is not easy. (laughs) How can we open ourselves up to Jesus? How can we expect something good from God? And the answer is going to sound simple, but it's not so easy. And the answer is trust. At some point, it all boils down to this, faith. At one point, Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. We have to take a chance with God. Or sometimes we have to take another chance and another chance. And the key to experiencing a good God is choosing choosing trust. Now, that's not to say Jesus doesn't come after us, no matter what we're choosing or doing. Like In these stories we see, he does come after people. He, he reaches out very specifically to the bleeding woman. He, he, he reaches out to the Gezerine man. And, uh, but as he does, he also lays opportunities in front of people and allows them to choose. And in today's passage, fear is the thing that argues against trust. They're afraid they'll lose. They're afraid they're forgotten. They're afraid they'll be abused. And the people in this passage who choose to trust and are proactive in their trust experience a deeper level of affirmation than they expected. What do you fear? You know, I meet people all the time. In fact, I meet a lot of people who are either thinking of pitching their faith in Jesus or they're, right on the, uh, they're very much on the front end of exploring faith in Jesus. In fact, in two weeks, I'm starting a group right near Penn's campus called Faith Reimagine. Starts in two Tuesdays, right near Penn and Drexel. And people, well, usually what we do the first week is we say, what's your hang-up? What are you afraid of? What bothers you? What's causing you to want to pitch it? Or what keeps you from engaging more? And we do this little exercise with post-its, and they all go up on the wall, and then we group them together, and that helps us decide what we're going to talk about. But here's what I want us to remember. Jesus will ask for and give far more than we expect. So the town is afraid, right? 
They ask for nothing, (laughs) and they miss the chance to experience Jesus. Jairus hopes for healing. He is asked to believe for resurrection, and he receives his daughter back from the dead. The woman hopes for physical healing. Jesus asks her for a public response, and she receives two healings. But here's the thing. In some senses, the townspeople are right for asking for nothing because they know Jesus is going to ask for a lot in return. In fact, he's going to ask for so much more. And it's not just the miracles that the presence of Jesus in their lives can bring. It's the peace of mind and soul that seeing who he is really brings that they're missing. It's the responding. It's the risk. It's the faith that creates the space for knowing that you'll never be forgotten. It's knowing that you're fully known but still accepted. That never happens unless you put that out there. And this is what brings the deep sense of love or healing that all these people needed. But it isn't easy to trust, is it? It's not easy to trust. There's a lot of reasons not to trust. There's many more reasons, it seems, most of the time to be cynical. That's why we're having a whole fall season that's about rediscovering good news because bad news is so obvious all the time. So to help us, Jesus does this. And I hope you can see how awesome this is. Jesus offers his hand through the cross. Now, what do I mean by that? So when Jesus goes to see Jairus' daughter, she's dead. And when he goes to her, he says something so unique in Aramaic, and that's the language that Jesus spoke in everyday life. Uh, the New Testament, uh, the stories about Jesus, they're written in Greek because that was the language of business and commerce of the day. That's the common language. But when he walked around... And he interacted with people. He didn't speak in Greek. He spoke in Aramaic. And he says in Aramaic, Talitha Kaum. And the author, Mark, decides to leave it in Aramaic because it's so hard to really capture in Greek, let alone then capture from Aramaic to Greek to English. Um, But here's what it means, the best that we can get at. Talitha means little girl. But that doesn't really do it justice. It's kind of like a pet name, you know, a term of endearment, like saying honey. Uh, Kaum means arise or simply just get up. It's something a father might say to his children any given morning when it was time to get ready for school or time for breakfast. Honey, get up. Honey, get up. Yet it had the power to raise the dead. Basically, what we're seeing here is the power of the universe exercised with incredible gentleness. This actually, although we don't picture it this way, sometimes we have these images of God being against us, waiting for the other shoe to drop, maybe being for me in general, but not for me personally. But this is the way Jesus reaches out to us and to people. It's hard to trust God. Jesus knows this. So we have this picture to help encourage us, along with the picture of his entire life. See, Jesus doesn't just offer his hand here in such a powerful and gentle way, but 
if you can imagine Jesus sort of letting go of his father's hand to take hold of ours. In a book I read by Tim Keller, he put it this way about Jesus. He said he lost his father's hand on the cross. He went into the tomb so that we could be raised out of it. He lost hold of his father's hand so that we could know that once he had us by the hand, he will never, ever forsake us. Honey, get up. Little girl, sweetheart. The cross isn't to shame us or guilt us. It's to demonstrate to us the deep love God has for us. Love that calls us daughter. That knows what is hidden and still reaches out to us. Love that is powerful and working in our lives, even when we're afraid that we're forgotten. This is where the deepest sense of affirmation comes. The cross, the resurrection that followed, makes Jesus completely unique, completely incomparable to any other figure, religious or otherwise, in the history of the world. It's God become man, God becoming man, going to the cross so that our separation would end if we take him by the hand. And for some reason, we can believe that this is true for the sake of humankind, but struggle to believe it personally for ourselves. Good news in general, but bad news in the moment. So if we can get this picture, the power of the universe in the most gentle form possible, a personal one, daughter, son, sweetheart, honey, get up, take my hand, trust me. Let's pray. Father, it helps to see stories of you interacting with person after person, group after group, inviting, encouraging people in the scriptures not to be afraid, calling them by terms of endearment, daughter, little girl. The stories help. And they open us up to your spirit, but your spirit is what makes it real. Come, Holy Spirit. Be in our meeting today. Be in the rest of our time together so that these words are real. They become real to us. They become so much more real than all of our hang-ups, all of our fears. In your name, amen. If you're on the worship team, please uh, make your way up. Uh, and right now, I want to invite a representative of our prayer team. Uh, folks, meet before the service. They pray. Um, get ready. We're going to go to you in a second, prayer team. But first, um, we have an update on uh, one of our BIT grant recipients. Eric, take it away.